0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The recording on a Friday, a day later than usual because the votes have now been counted on a couple of big by-elections, and the Conservatives, Labour and the Lib Dems are all waking up with headaches, but for different reasons. A double defeat for Boris Johnson was said to be baked in, but this is another bad morning of headlines for the Prime Minister this week in Rwanda at the Commonwealth Summit, For Labour, who won in Wakefield, and the Lib Dems, who overturned a massive Conservative majority in Tiverton and Honiton, the celebrations will have gone on through the night. So how significant were these votes? We're going to crunch the numbers, and in a week of rail strikes and another rise in inflation, tell you what it all means for the government, in our view. And after taking in the developments in Devon and West Yorkshire, we'll continue our tour of England because the IFG team have been on the road again, this time to Manchester, as part of our series interviewing England's mayors. It's people like Andy Street, Tracy Braben, Steve Rotherham, and Andy Burnham. Are they doing a good job? Do they need more power? They always say so. Does the government want to give them that? A new report of ours digs into those questions, so we're going to ask one of the authors to explain why. All that to come. Two IFG colleagues are with me throughout this podcast. Deputy Director Hannah White. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bronwyn. And Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Good morning, Bronwyn. Good morning. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by James Johnson, a former Downing Street pollster for Theresa May and who now runs JL Partners. Hi, James.
1: Good morning.
0: Very good to have you with us. Let's kick off with those by election results. James, perhaps I can come to you first. How do the results tally with the polling that we had in advance?
1: Well, uh, we saw two polls uh, for Wakefield in advance one by Servation and one by my firm, uh, JL Partners. Savation had a 23 point lead. Uh, we had a 20-point lead, and we ended up with an 18-point Labour lead. Um, the JL Partners poll uh, had uh, 48% uh, for Labour. Labour ended up getting 48%. We had 28% for the Conservatives, uh, and the Conservatives ended up getting 30%. Uh, so not to boast too much about my own poll, uh, but both polls uh, got it pretty much in the right uh, sort of area. There weren't, there wasn't a poll released for Tiverton and uh, but that very much echoed what we'd seen in previous uh, by-elections, whether the Dems have been uh, the main sort of second or third party uh, over the last couple of years.
0: And we all know that there are cases where the polls do not get it right. Can you say anything about why you feel it it worked this time? And is that related in any way to turnout?
1: Well, I think it was, it's an interesting one because uh, we actually ran our poll, um, as well as that servation one happened, um, about a month out from before the result. Um, so we were attaching a fair bit of caution to it because obviously things can shift during campaigns. Um, But that didn't seem to happen here, I think, because a lot of that Lib Dem vote had already been squeezed uh, by Labour, and because it's a seat where more matters about more uh, the swing voters who choose between Labour and the Conservatives matter more uh, than in those safer Conservative or safer Labour uh, seats. Um, Why did this poll work? Uh, It's it's one particular geography. Um, So uh, that at least means that there are fewer moving parts um, in terms of different parts of the country, uh, different audiences going in different directions. Um, It's obviously uh, difficult to poll on turnout, but we seem to have modelled that relatively well um, in terms of it being uh, low turnout, but not catastrophically low. Um, and picking up that differential turnout too um so yeah it was a pretty a, a pretty good night in terms of the, the polling results there I think the small geography helps I think the level of swing voter voters helps um, and uh, I think learning lessons from previous polling misses back in 2016 2017 as well
0: really interesting and let me just ask you one fi- one final thing before I come to the others uh, Peter Kellner of uh, uh, former, um, former pollster of, of your anyway, line of work made the point in a piece this morning, that conservatives got mo- more votes overall than the other two, and raised the question of whether first past the post might, in fact, not work for them, if p- particularly if people are very inclined towards tactical voting.
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing really uh, the first real sign of significant, uh, large-scale tactical voting, really for the first time uh, since the since the two thousands, um, with Labour with voters really choosing Labour or Lib Dem depending on who the biggest opposition is. Now, one big bit of caution here is that by-elections aid that a little bit more. Um, uh, General elections tend to be, voters tend to be thinking about who the next prime minister is. Um, Even if a party has no chance in a a seat, um, they may drag in some votes just because they'll bring in voters who perhaps wouldn't vote in by-elections and are voting on national issues. Um, But with that caveat to one side, Clearly, uh, Labour and Lib Dem voters are mobilised against the Conservative Party at the moment. Uh, Everything we see in the polls suggests that's more of an anti-Boris vote than an anti-Tory vote. Um, But it's going to be very worrying for the Conservatives indeed, both in seats in the South, uh, where they face a Lib Dem challenge, but also in seats in the North and the Midlands, where they face a Labour challenge, where some of those margins are very tight. And Lib Dems coming over to Labour can actually tip the balance away from the Conservatives, even if the Tories do not lose a single vote.
0: Really, really interesting. I must just ask you, do you think these show that Boris Johnson is now a liability, not an asset? Uh, c-
1: completely. I mean, I think that's been clear um, since mid-January, actually. Um, in the polls, in the focus groups, we had the local election results too, and we've had these by-election results. Since about mid-January, his brand has been quite frankly toxic. Um, voters have changed their mind on him. His strong points have become his weak points. They think he's untrustworthy. The word they most commonly associate him Uh, with is the word liar, Uh, and those views are fundamentally shifted. I actually think the Conservative brand is still relatively um, buoyant in that if there was a new leader who was trusted, the Conservatives could turn that around quite fast. That Labour swing in Wakefield, it was bad for the Conservatives, but it wasn't existentially bad. It wasn't a sign of a Labour Party headed to a landslide like in the 1990s. So, yes, I think there's one very clear... Barrier to people voting Conservative at the moment, and, and that is Boris Johnson.
0: Really clearly put. Giles, we're, we're fiercely impartial at the IFG, but in a former life, you were an advisor to Vince Cable, a Liberal yes. Democrat minister. What do you make of what this means for the Lib Dems and the revival that they are perpetually trying to have?
2: Well, obviously, it's hugely encouraging. I mean, what more could you ask for than to gain such a vast amount of, um, I mean, 38% increase in Tiverton? Um, And um, also be identified so clearly and so early by the voters as the main challenger, which, given the the way the current voting system works, they really do need that message to come across really well. And so they must be immensely pleased with that. There's only so much you can do. I mean, James is absolutely right that a by-election is a highly unusual set of circumstances. Everyone's able to focus. You can put all your resources there. But I would say if tactical voting is really key to the Lib Dems getting a share of seats closer to their share of the national vote share, then they need two things with tactical voting. One, obviously, voters to have the technical ability uh, to work out where they should be putting their vote, which is difficult. I mean, after all, in Tiverton, they came third before. So the voters seem to have some interesting instinct for how there's a kind of ceiling on Labour support in those parts of the country that isn't in um, there for the Lib Dems. But the the other thing that really matters for the Lib Dems is that there's such a strong inclination to tactically vote, which, as you've implied, I haven't really seen since um, the at least the 2001 election, as far as I see, where voters are kind of going into the booth and going, well, how can I defeat the Tories best? And that's their major motivation, which is why I think one of the dilemmas, in a sense, they have, not that it's within their choice to make, but do they want to now face... Johnson at the next election as a powerful sort of polariser and someone who can help their tactical voting campaign because you just put his face on your Lib Dem leaflet and say do you want to get rid of this man because we're the best way of doing it and that's a really simple that's a really simple pitch and they might be now wondering whether they want uh, more conservatives to join Oliver Dowden in resigning and implicitly saying that Boris Johnson is the problem because he's looking like becoming a hell of an asset for the opposition parties.
0: Really interesting, and and there are no official electoral packs, of course. But you you were there in the coalition days. The questions about whether there is some informal co- uh, cooperation with Labour going to grow, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean they're bound to, and it's very easy to do it, not without anything really explicit. I mean, parties are highly constrained in their resources. They can choose where they put them. They can choose, you know, where to put their best candidates sometimes, and. And the voters can sort of pick up the message. So I think there was far less inclination to do that under the coalition times. The the confusing message that the Tories were kind of with closer to the Lib Dems around then. And, you know, where do you put your vote? That totally scrambled tactical voting. I mean, it's one of the great counterfactuals. What would have happened if the Conservatives had had to govern alone during those austerity times? So um, I don't think a formal pact will happen at all. For some reason or other, it's regarded in this country as really sneaky, even if it's so normal in other continental countries. Societies quite similar to us for parties to sort of st- strike agreements and so forth um but um i do think implicitly the voters are going to be picking up on the message that they're being expected to think about their vote for or against the government right now and whether to- they want to get rid of them or not
0: really interesting and hannah I want, I want you to take us into parliament i've got to ask you some things in a moment about about johnson and his majority and everything but this last point that giles just made um which I thought was very interesting about whether people in Britain feel it's a bit sneaky his, his work, to have coalitions. Do you feel that that's because of the weight we still put on manifestos and what that means? And obviously coalition then can't stick to every bit of it, or even say it's going to stick to every bit of its manifesto.
3: Yes, I think there's a sort of sense that voters in every constituency should have the option to back uh, any of the, the, the manifestos that they have put before them with a serious chance of uh um that's becoming uh electing a, a member that would would then um back that manifesto but i think the reality is the first past the post system they, they they never really have that choice um in uh around a, a of third of seats uh are safe and haven't changed hands for decades so uh it's a it's an incongruous um uh sense to have that that it's unfair to to have a, a pact but actually the first pass of the post system doesn't give voters that that, that choice yeah. that they um, have the illusion of having in the first place. Really interesting. Okay, into Parliament then. Um, Johnson's
0: majority keeps shrinking with all these by-elections, but it's still very big. Does this matter anymore to him? What kind of asset is that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the loss of two uh, heads in Parliament is the thing that's making a difference for Boris Johnson right now. It's actually the impact on his... MPs' confidence in him as leader that will have come through from these by-elections. And I think even though he appears to have uh, a large majority still, the sort of majority that previous prime ministers would have killed for, um, I don't think that's going to do him a huge amount of good in the coming months and years in the run-up to the next election. His backbenchers, have many of them have now nailed their colours to the mast in terms of uh, their confidence or lack of confidence in him And they're also aware of the power they can exert. It doesn't take a very big rebellion um, from from Conservative backbenchers to stand in the way of bits of bills or whole bills that they don't like. There was a very ambitious, uh, full programme that the government put forward in terms of uh, the number of bills it had in the the Queen's speech, even if not the ambition of those bills. Um, And I think that he is going to have to take parliamentary management very uh, seriously in the next few few months in the run-up to the election because it's not going to be straightforward getting everything through. He's got some controversial stuff coming, hasn't
0: he, which he still seems to be pressing on with. the um, was about the Northern Ireland Protocol, that bill comes back on Monday, and about Rwanda. What do you think, any chance he pulls that bill?
3: Possibly, but I think that actually, you know, he he laid down the gauntlet to the DUP to say that they had to commit to go back into power sharing for him, him to progress it. They've kind of caught his bluff on that. And I think the priority for him really is going to be to, to show that he's standing up to the EU. Um, so I think that he will want to get that piece of legislation underway. Um, and he's, he'll probably pre- be prepared to um, take the hit of, for, on Northern Ireland's behalf in terms of uh, functioning government there in order to, to have that electoral kind of um, message going forward that he's, he's still standing up to the EU over Brexit.
0: Really interesting. And tell us about the Privileges Committee hearing, because this is one of the things, isn't it, that, that is going to mean that ethics and standards just don't go away? That's a yeah, question. I
3: think that's that's the issue. <laughs> we, hope, we hope they're
0: not going to go away. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I think that is the issue for him. The Privileges Committee uh, has a, a important job in its hands to to make a uh, credible inquiry into the question of whether Johnson uh, did lie to Parliament in his statements over Partygate, and uh, will want to hear from the Prime Minister. And he won't have a choice over that. He does have to come if if they they call him. Um, and I think that that just prolongs. Public discussion of the, the 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 big problem, which is damaging his credibility, this this question over his ethical standards and and whether he feels that rules are for other people. Um, so that's going to be a, a big media event, I think, when that happens. And I think uh, it's going to not not help him uh, move on from from these issues in the way that he clearly wants to do.
0: Really interesting, James. Uh, Boris Johnson managed to fly away from these things literally. This week he, he went to, is in Rwanda for the giant Commonwealth gathering. What do you think the public make of the Rwanda flights policy for illegal
1: migrants? Well, we've seen a of results depending on exactly how the question uh, is framed. Um, we we uh, ran a, a, a poll uh, on it and um, uh, used the word uh, deporting um, and we saw actually narrow um, opposition to it. Um, whereas other polls uh, that have um, asked uh, without using that word show narrow support for it, I think what is clear is that it's not a complete knockout popular policy, nor is it a po- policy that is repelling people. Perhaps in the way it's repelling uh, some on on Twitter and in the Westminster in the world of Westminster. Um, I, I think that the key thing is uh, it is uh, and to drag it back to Boris Johnson again um, is Im- important because. Voters see and judge policies not on an individual checklist, but as part of the overall package, as part of who is the leader and the party that's delivering this. And do I trust them? And therefore, do I trust the policy uh, to, 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 uh, to to come good, to actually happen? And with this Rwanda policy, whatever people might think of the specifics, the trust in it to actually happen is basically shot to pieces because they don't trust Boris Johnson. And we saw a bit of this with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, although the policies were popular in the 2019, um, Corbyn's brand was so toxic um, that voters, uh, even though they liked the policies, uh, did not vote for Labour Party. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen. I uh, said on uh, one media programme about a month ago, that you know, Boris Johnson is becoming the sort of conservative Corbyn in that regard. I think... Uh, For my sins, Keir Starmer ended up using it at PMQs. Um, But what I meant by that phrase is that Boris Johnson is poisoning, because of that complete lack of trust, even relatively popular or mixed policies for the Conservative Party. And that's a real struggle for them, because whether it's Rwanda, whether it's efforts on the cost of living, uh, they're almost sort of dead by association uh, if they've got his name on them.
0: Really, really interesting um, from your polling, where do the public stand on the rail strikes, where the government is saying on the one hand it's not directly involved, but then um, Grant Shapps, the transport uh, secretary, you're saying an awful lot.
1: Yes, we definitely see in the in the in the polls publicly on this. We see people on the one hand saying that they understand why the strikers are striking um, and that they have sympathy with them, uh, but on the other hand, saying that they uh, narrowly oppose or pretty much fifty fifty. Um, support uh, oppose, the, oppose the strike. So basically, we get more people saying they're opposed than we get people saying they don't have any sympathy with the strikers. And I think that shows that there's a bit of a nuanced position here, um, perhaps compared to how uh, some might be trying to frame it. Um, voters realise um, that there is a very acute cost of living crisis going on. They, they, they're experiencing that every day themselves. So they're not turning around and seeing these strikers as, you know, using a, you know, sort of moaning about something that that, that isn't a problem or, or trying to leverage a crisis for their own right. They've got sympathy with them in that regard. And uh, there was an excellent um, focus group that was run in Tiverton and Honiton actually, by uh, Ed, Ed Doral, who writes for The Independent. And he wrote that um, actually conservative voters there were more nuanced because they had that blend of, yes, unease about strikes but also sympathy with the strikers. So the Conservatives will need to take a a careful line on this. The one thing I would say is that the thing that voters respect most is a party and a leader have it being clear um, and being principled. And I think a lot of voters will look at the Labour response, will look at Keir Starmer's response, and come to the conclusion that isn't the case. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the focus groups already. They don't Mm -hmm. really know where Keir Starmer stands on it, and that's a problem for him because voters already have doubts about his strength and his clarity.
0: Yeah. Hannah, it's been a problem for Labour, hasn't it, these rail strikes?
3: It has. They don't know. um, Well, they're they're struggling with exactly how to position themselves on it. They're aware of the disruption to to many people, which will be making them unpopular. And the kind of combination of these strikes on top, I think, of the uh, disruption with uh, airlines, uh, we've had the news about the British Airways strikes on, on top yesterday. Uh, I think there's a sense that this could be a really difficult summer for people on top of uh, a series of years in which people couldn't really go on holiday. This one now looks as though going on holiday may be more stressful than staying at home. Um, and so they don't really want to pin uh, their uh, colours too firmly to the mast of supporting um, sp- supporting this, this, the strikes On the other hand, I think that makes a lot of uh, Labour MPs feel very uncomfortable.
0: And the government's mused openly about whether it might change some uh, legislation in order to curtail the ability of strikes to disrupt Mm -hmm. um, things, for example, um, whether or not companies or organisations can can bring in agency workers um, and, and so on. Can it do some of this through just secondary legislation or does it need primary legislation and and uh, the support of the the House for this?
3: No, I think it can do some of it through secondary legislation. Uh, and it's the, the question there is just whether it, it it wants to do it or not. It's clearly much more plausible with um, certain professions and roles to to be able to bring in people. Um, on an agency basis than it is in others. Um, I think in terms of sort of safety and and skills on the railways, that's much harder than perhaps um, sort of checking staff or something uh, at an airport.
0: Very good point. Giles, inflation. Uh, We've been talking a lot about it at the IFG and people are talking more and more about it in, in very worried Tones, you, you posted some fascinating tweets suggesting that the effect of inflation on a government's, on, on the way people perceive a government's competence is much worse than persistent unemployment. Why, why is yeah.
1: that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Today, we've seen record low UK consumer confidence, which is, you have need to read it twice to think about that. In 2008, we had the economy shrinking at a record pace and unemployment shooting up to 2 million. And Things seeming to fall to pieces, and consumer confidence wasn't apparently as low then as it is now, mostly driven by inflation. So, but that, yes, but that affects everyone.
0: Inflation yeah, affects and it's everyone. because it affects, it affects everyone. It, whereas, yeah. even and, with a lot of unemployment, the fear of that may affect a, a much smaller group of people. Yes,
2: and that's got to be the reason why. And it's, it's broad, everybody feels it. They also. It's also something people don't feel they have any control over. Unless you've got a, a phenomenal amount of bargaining power in your job, you, do, you, don't, you, you sit there passively having to take the fact that your pay doesn't go as far. And you feel like it's the ultimate symbol of the government having lost control. I mean, I think Lenin famously said that the best way to undermine a, a, a country is to debauch its currency. And that's what people sort of feel when inflation is going on. And to, and to come in to powerfully um, agree with what James says there about the importance of trusted leadership at a time, like this. Uh, Inflation of the kind that we're currently suffering, comes from the supply side the country is in effect poorer and the price rises way that that is manifested it forces the leader to have to turn around to the electorate and say we've got tough choices we genuinely have tough choices our money doesn't go as far as it does before just like harold wilson did at the deflation uh, crisis uh, the the devaluation crisis
0: what are the kind of tough choices well, who takes the want to spell out I mean the, the sort you know, of just just tease it out for us. Yes, what, yes of course. What are, the, what are the choices?
2: So so you need a leader to be able to say look the money isn't going to go as far certain people are going to have to take pay rises that are less than the rate of inflation and therefore see their living standards fall. That's going to be the fundamental that's the biggest one. And governments pretty much continuously through the period of sort of chaotic macroeconomic management from the 60s to the 70s early 80s. We're having to have that conversation with people and arguing with unions and arguing with companies about prices rising and wages rising. And and so right now we see the government taking these decisions, sometimes by default, but sometimes explicitly. They've protected pensioners by allowing the state pension to rise in line with inflation. They are not allowing the same kind of generosity to public sector workers. They don't anymore have a say or, or a view on what private sector is doing. You occasionally hear noises from them about price gouging that they think they can see in the corporate sector. I doubt that their evidence is very good there, but they're aware that people will look around at prices rising and wonder whether it's all fair. And so all of these decisions, whether they like it or not, whether it's technically possible to do anything about it or not, when inflation is high, people turn around and look at the government and say, is it fair? Because not everybody receives the same result from it yeah.
0: and you were making the point earlier this morning that actually the government had um looked favorably on uh, some fares uh, rising by rpi um but 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 held back on that for wages
2: yeah i mean i think it's a really difficult communications problem they've got when trying often to have these rather inept conversations against the very effective mick lynch of the um rmt union when they turn around to say to him look we just can't afford to be paying your workers, an inflationary pay rise or even close to it. He turns around and says, well, you seem to have an automatic rule that the consumers who are not turning up as much to the railways as before, they have to pay an inflationary fare increase. So why is it that you think that you shouldn't be paying the workers anything close to it? And it's really awkward because if the government's, narrative is that all of this feeds a wage price spiral there they are making a decision about the price part of it but saying that it's the wage part that shouldn't be following along which is a monumentally political decision and just to make just to come back on that point i was going to make earlier James said about the importance of leadership at a time like this. It's a time when the Prime Minister has to turn around and talk to the people about the decisions he's making Mm -hmm. and why they're fair and why they're right. And if there's any suspicion of hypocrisy or lack of trust in that figurehead, anything he says will just be discounted and not trusted, and that's then a huge problem.
0: Mm. Hannah, we're suddenly in very kind of grim economic times, and we've had in the past few years a lot of... um very political and kind of constitutional battles in Parliament. How do you think the mood changes when we're suddenly faced with, as, as Giles has been describing, these tough economic decisions for government and and for you know individual people and voters?
3: Well, I think it is very different in a parliamentary sense. On these constitutional battles, you have often the concern about the issues cuts across parties. And you have different members who are more or less um, uh, exercised about those sorts of issues. I think the, the difference with the the economic um, headwinds and, 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 and issues and so on is that every member uh, knows that, that this is affecting their constituencies and their constituents. And so it is of, of central concern to all members, but also the sort of decisions about what to do about it are much more uh, aligned by party. So, whereas we've had some quite unusual uh, periods in Parliament where uh, the sort of coalitions of, of, of MPs who've come together to um, challenge on, on what's happened have been uh, sort of cobbled together from, from different parties, now I think we're going to go through a much more uh, aligned period where we go back to much more traditional uh, party uh, a sort of um, conflict over mm-hmm. these issues. Really, really interesting. James, do polls
0: give politicians any kind of guidance on how to ask voters to make these tough choices that Giles was talking about? How to have that discussion with them?
1: I think it's, it's a difficult one because I think if you listen to the polls in the short term, uh, you can obviously end up in a situation in which you don't make tough choices because you think, oh, you know, we've got this pressure or that pressure, we need to give that away or that that away, or you know, try and sort of you know, plaster over that electoral wound here or that electoral wound there. I think that if you take a wider view of the polls and you don't just interpret them literally, but you know, really actually think about what they say, you do end up in a situ- in, 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 a, in a, the kind of situation Giles is talking about. If you think about how parties who've been in midterm difficulties before have come to recover, it's tended to be with a very clear narrative about why they're unpopular now and what they're doing to get through that and the tough decisions they're making. And voters actually tend to eventually respect that. That goes for Margaret Thatcher in the 80s. That goes for David Cameron and George Osborne in the 2010 parliament as well. So, look, I think voters, uh, I, think, I think politicians can be tempted by the short-term messages of polls, but actually the, the, the sort of stand back and look at it and look at what the public respond best to suggests that that sort of tough decisions uh, narrative uh, might actually not only be better for the country, potentially, but also actually better with the public as well.
0: Charles, how worried should we be about inflation? I must say, for for me, this week, um, along with all the other things happening and lots of news, it's a bit rather dominated in mood by having listened to Larry Summers, the big um, American economist, on a talk on Monday at the LSE. And he was really arguing that inflation is very hard to get rid of and that 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 um in, in we may find this bout of inflation very hard to to get rid of
2: wow if you want your twitter um social media feed to go berserk just mention something larry summers has said about inflation and say there might be some merit in it and it, in my case it just explodes i mean i think uh, larry summers deserves real credit for pointing out quite a while ago that the amount of fuel that the us economy was putting in uh, via the fiscal means the huge um Uh, COVID uh, bills that were passed by Donald Trump and then Joe Biden would be enough to fuel a really large increase in inflation. And it does seem to have come about. Um, Look, compared to the problem we had in the 80s and 90s, when it seemed to be sort of hard coded into our economy, and it was really difficult to get the spiral to end, I don't think we're in anything like those kind of risky situations. There's already signs that the economy seems to be slowing down, even though inflation is still I mean, the interest rates are still well below 2%. So there's an op- optimistic angle, which is, look, we have independent central banks. We have a long, a lot further we could raise interest rates, but their credibility in pursuing a 2% inflation target has been very well established. We don't see lots and lots of wage rises going in higher than that. So let's keep with the playbook we've been using for the last 20, 30 years and trust that it will come down once some of these extremely unpredictable exogenous forces like the sharp rise in oil prices post-Ukraine pass through. My concern is that A, people like Larry Summers should not be ignored when they seem to have got a call right, and it's not just him, it's other very good economists like Jason Furman. B, there's something about a kind of persistence in the way inflation hangs around that when the economy gets used to a certain level of it when people are used to last year's wage rise being four percent and it wasn't enough to keep them actually Mm. prosperous they get used to that being the next thing to ask for and it's extremely difficult to turn that around and that the Bank of England or the other central banks can just remain behind the curve that there's something called the sort of natural or equilibrating interest rate that they're meant to be pursuing and if they fall behind it um, then it rises so they were meant to have rates at three percent say right now and they only got them at two it rises to five percent so by the time they get to three it should have been much higher Mm. and in the end they have to do something really brutal like Paul Volcker did in the beginning of the 80s in the US economy that's the real concern and even if it's a 10% 10% risk, that they're somehow behind the curve and money growth and nominal GDP is exploding. Um, that it, it mm. is a 10% chance of a real disaster given the level of debt in the economy.
0: And one of the points that Larry Summers was making that it took Paul Volcker more than one go to finally yeah. have the, 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 the Volcker amendment. Okay, I'm going to take that as a sort of almost optimism um, almost. From, from Giles. That even all these years after Ed Ball said it, you can't use the word exogenous on a general podcast like this. OK, let's move away from these um, these subjects of Boris Johnson and inflation and so on to mayors and whether or not government and Westminster should give power away. Ministers acknowledge that leve- levelling up needs to be led by local politicians, but are they actually giving them the powers and the money to deliver it? Akash Pown, who's one of our senior fellows and the author of a new report on mayors, joins us now. Hi, Akash. Hi, Bronwyn. Great. We've been doing a tour um, of of England, which I want to talk about. But let's just have some quick questions to begin with. How many metro mayors are there in England?
4: Well, there's nine metro mayors, um, not counting Sadiq Khan, mayor of London. So sometimes people talk about the M10 group of mayors. Okay, that's a neat handle. When were they created? So the nine metro mayors have been elected um, at various points since 2017. The first six were elected then, and then we've had three subsequent deals, most recently in uh, West Yorkshire just last year.
0: Okay, brilliant. How many more in the pipeline?
4: Well, that's a bit more difficult to answer. Um, I mean, the government has made clear as part of its levelling up strategy that it is very keen to conclude further devolution deals. Um, in places that so far don't have any form of devolution. And it is very clear that it wants as many places as possible to take on uh, some form of mayor-led uh, model. Um, not, It's not clear how many places are actually going to go down that path. I mean, I think what we know is in North Yorkshire, um, we expect to see a metro mayor elected. Possibly in the East Midlands, there's talk of a new form of combined county authority led by a mayor. Elsewhere in places like Cornwall we may see not metro mayors but directly elected county council leaders. Right.
0: So great array of, of these things and uh, in a way responding to what people want but you can also see why people begin to find it confusing. Hannah let me bring you in. Every government says they will devolve powers particularly, I don't mean to be cynical, in the run-up to a general election. Then they get a grip on the levers of power and releasing that grip and, and the money is, becomes not so enticing. Is that fair?
3: I think that is fair. I think there's there's widespread acknowledgement that devolution that is a good thing. But actually letting go, I, you put your finger on it, principally on of the money um, is the thing that uh, central governments really struggle with. And that's the thing which is, is fundamentally problematic, I think, for people that are for the mayors and, uh, and others at the local level, Um, if they're constantly having to uh, cobble together their finances from little bits of money released from central government in different places, different funds, different things they have to bid for, that just doesn't enable them to plan and we don't get the benefits of devolution uh, that we should be seeing, that we would see if uh, central government would release the purse strings in that way. Right. And supposing it did, or looking at the places where it has, what about scrutiny,
0: something that you write a lot about? Because arguably... You you know, that needs to be put in place at a local level as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a a really important consideration. Obviously, um, in London, there's the the Assembly, which scrutinizes uh, the work of the mayor. And there are uh, accountability mechanisms put in place um, for the metro mayors. But it is uh, something that, um, you know, if you're going to devolve serious amounts of money to these places, uh, you then need to think about uh, how to hold uh, elected politicians accountable for spending that money. And James, are they popular?
1: Look, yes. I think that clearly, you know, I think it's pretty clear from what we can see that they've injected a bit of uh, vitality into sort of, you know, the, the system as a whole. Um, you clearly saw that in the pandemic with Andy Burnham. Um, and people, you know, have obviously noticed these new personalities and generally approve of them. You saw that with Andy Burnham and you saw that with Ben Houchen in the Tees Valley. The only thing I would say is just a slightly caution about how uh, much uh, people might be aware. Of them and how much uh, they might engage. I mean, even that, even those elections in 2021, even that Andy Burnham re-election turnout was only around a third. So very low turnout. We're not seeing a world in which people are, you know, flocking to vote uh, in these in these mayoral elections just yet. Uh, they're not quite as low turnout as the police crime commissioner elections, um, but there's clearly still work to do uh, in building turnout and building interest and awareness of these of these roles and of these uh, of these elected officers.
0: Akash, so let's go to your your report and the tour that you've been doing. This week you were in Manchester interviewing Andy Burnham,
2: weren't you? There is a joining of the dots between housing, transport, regeneration, green space, livability in its broadest sense. And that just can't be done um, from Whitehall. So I think what I would say is, as part of this discussion we're about to go into, it's why we strongly welcome the report that the Institute for Government has published. It, it's our ability to, to 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 join the dots at a place-based level um, that means we are adding something to UK PLC. And um, the more powers
4: you give us, the more we can do that. The, the success story will get stronger.
0: What does your report say, Akash?
4: Yes, so I think what we, we absolutely found is that in at least most of the places where Metro mayors have been established since 2017... They have begun to, to add value to their regions. Um, I mean, it's not been so smooth sailing everywhere. And I, what, One thing we point out is the government should be careful about pushing places to accept a metro mayor or, or other directly elected leader model where there really isn't strong local support. Because when they've done that in the past, uh, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, I think, is, is a good example of this, where there's really quite weak local support among the local government community Um, it doesn't lead to the kind of collaborative leadership across the region that this model is supposed to facilitate Um, it's also important to be sure that the geography makes sense you know you have to devolve to a scale that makes sense well ideally in economic terms but also reflects people's sense of space of place so what does that, that mean aligns it, with it, it mustn't,
0: Jack means what does that mean it mustn't be too big then but it mustn't be too small just right i think it's,
4: it does vary from place to place but i mean for example um in uh the the west of england we have a devolution deal uh put in place that only covers three quarters three out of four of the local areas of the old county of Avon, uh, which means that in terms of economic activity and and people's uh, and, and other uh, geography like the geography of the police area and and, and and hS geography and so on there's just poor alignment between the the area the mayors responsible for and um, and other boundaries so in some places it has been more of a struggle but but absolutely in some of the big northern and midland city regions in greater manchester in liverpool city region in the west midlands um where i think we've seen a real kind of commitment to making this new model work um across the the local leaders in the area we've seen it start to make a difference um, in terms of transport integration in terms of um from redesigning local skills and employment services in light of of local economic circumstances, um, you can see them making a difference. And then I think the mayors also, as 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 James was just talking about, um, they have begun I think to fill that gap in English politics in terms of providing a voice for for parts of the country that that maybe have been. Uh, neglected a bit, and and, and certainly we saw that during the pandemic and at various other times as well. Well, let me pick up that point,
0: because Giles, you've been following the the government's levelling up agenda. Is it important to give powers and money away, or in fact, does that undermine the government's ability to pursue that agenda?
2: I will give you an unambiguous answer. It is important to give powers and money away. I think it's important, as Akash implied there, for people to feel that they're being represented, that they've got a champion and uh, and that's important regardless of whether you can correlate that with a great economic return or not people like to know there's someone locally who stands up for them and um as a co- i think a conservative cabinet minister once said that they know they will have succeeded in this devolution agenda when they turn on the today program and something important locally has happened and it's the local politician who's being held accountable for it not some cabinet minister dragged out of bed so um it's very important from that point of view but i would say also as somebody who spends a lot of time talking to business who are sometimes mystified about who to talk to where it's um very unusual to have a country like the UK where you want to do something in say Birmingham or Cheshire and you have to try and trek to and find the right person in Whitehall to speak to it's just very inefficient you want to have somebody locally who can sort things out for you who can arrange the right planning permits or can um, have the conversations with the other local businesses that need to be brought on board or can sort out the local skill system now it might not be efficient and the treasury mind will always worry that Leaving things up to sort of local interest means you've got people with sort of without the high levels of competence you get when you have a sort of economy of scale like the government in. London but you know it's just crazy you can't have international investors coming to this country saying I want to help with your leveling up agenda how can I invest in this or that part of the country and having to find the right directorate of the department for leveling up in in Whitehall so absolutely we do need devolution if you want to get a start on this
4: agenda.
0: All right resounding and unambiguous as you promised Akash just give us a quick um, snapshot
4: of what your main recommendation is. Sure. So I mean, what, what we suggest is that in the next phase of devolution, the focus should really be on filling in the gaps in the existing devolution settlements and, and creating a more coherent sphere of, of, of political and policy autonomy for leaders like Andy Burnham working with the, the combined authority. Um, because what we've had so far is a much more uh, a a piecemeal, fragmented transfer of individual functions, specific, often quite tightly ring-fenced budgets—you know—to to, to to deliver um, pro- projects and priorities agreed in Whitehall. Um, and this is absolutely what Andy Burnham was was arguing um, in the clip we've just heard, and and certainly in the event we ran with him. That if you really want to start to see. The benefits of devolution, and if you want to, to to take advantage of the ability of the mayor and other local leaders to join up across these different set of uh of, of 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 functions and levers then we need to move beyond that and yeah to some extent Whitehall the treasury has to take a bit of a a leap of faith uh to some extent and 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 really empower these leaders provide them with with long-term flexible funding that can be reallocated according to local needs. But then, yes, absolutely, as, as you've said yourself, Bronwyn, that will need reform and strengthening of scrutiny mechanisms and, and of accountability for the public money that will be spent as well.
0: Akash, great points. Well, I really recommend everyone listen to that um, interview conversation with uh, Andy Burnham and the look at the report which is excellent. But that is it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Giles Wilkes, Hannah White, Akash Pown and James Johnson. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify or major platforms. And do vote for us, leave us a positive review. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Akash's report on mayors is there. A new guest paper by former Lord Chancellor Robert Buckland. And we've got some terrific events coming up too, including a talk by former Prime Minister Theresa May and a conversation with Jeremy Hunt. Very well-timed. Check out our website. Sign up. That's it for now, though. We are not on strike. We have slightly inflated the length of this inside briefing because there's so much news, but we will get on top of that inflation for next week. And we'll be with you as usual. Have a good weekend.